And we're back. Generations talking about my sports generations. And as always, I am Jonathan. And I am Steve. Hey, everybody. And here we are, season two, episode two, going strong. Again, thank you so much to everyone who listens. And thank you, everyone who pays attention to this. And as we announced last week, we have our listener appreciation party that is next week, Saturday the 20th. But we've got a little bit of an update based on some new information. So go ahead and lay that down, Steve. Yeah, all you listeners, uh, if you want to come check us out, it is tomorrow. It is, I'm sorry, not tomorrow. It's Saturday, January 20th at Transmission Brewery, which is connected to Topper's Pizza on Front Street in Ventura. And we've decided to be there at 2.30. So I may have said 3.30 last week, but 2.30 is a better time for everybody, especially getting a table. And, you know, this is all fun. So any anyone listening, anyone out there in the universe who's hearing us, come check it out. Come say hi to us. Tell us what you like about the shows. Maybe tell us ways we can improve the show. Have a couple slices of pizza and a beer, and we'll have a fun afternoon. So that's next Saturday. We hope everyone can show up. And so... Today's show is actually one that is, um, I think, I'm going to guess is pretty universal for most people because we have these players that we think fondly of across our respective sports fandom. But go ahead and lay down what today's about, Steve. Okay, t- today's all about, and I'm, I'm not sure where I came up with this one, but, um, and I have a quick question, Jonathan. Can you hear me okay? Because it sounds weird to me. Is everything going I hear good? You. I okay. hear you just just fine. Can you hear me all right? I, I can hear you perfectly. Okay. Today is about people who are appreciated and acknowledged and sometimes, um, sometimes really given the business about how great they are. But that's not everybody. And I know when I was working... I always went out of my way to tell people I appreciated them for doing things, little things, being being polite to clients, you know, whatever it was. It wasn't just the superstars. And so what I thought would be interesting to talk about today would be what we're calling unsung heroes. And I think my first unsung hero will will kind of will I think will will explain it all pretty well. But basically, it's those players that don't get all the accolades, don't get on the cover of Sports Illustrated, probably don't make All-Stars or Hall of Fame, but they are integral parts and the team would not be the same without them. And I'm going to start with my generation and I'm going to start with a guy who actually was born on my birthday, but 10 years earlier. So 1971, the Lakers were just a powerhouse. They had Wilt, they had West, they had Gail Goodrich, they had Happy Hairston, and they had Elgin Baylor. But the problem with Elgin was his knees were gone and he just couldn't do it anymore. So he retired early in the season. And those of you never saw Elgin Baylor play, he was, you know, a combination between Charles Barkley and Dr. J before them. He was just unbelievable. But his game left him. And the Lakers brought in a guy from the Ivy League, a rookie named Jimmy McMillan. He went to Columbia. He's from Brooklyn, went to Columbia. And he fit in seamlessly. The day he came in the lineup, the Lakers went on a 33-game winning streak. 
33 games. I mean, that's that's unbelievable. And they lost to Kareem's Milwaukee Bucks. But they went on to win the title that year. They beat the Knicks. And Jimmy McMillan was an integral part of that team. And if you talk about the Lakers in the 70s, you would say, yeah, Wilt. I mean, Wilt, you know, Wilt takes up the whole room. You talk about Jerry West, you know, the guy who the logo of the NBA is. You might talk about Gail Goodrich, who was a very good player in his own right. Or even Happy Harrison, who could bang the boards. But you rarely talk about a guy like Jimmy McMillan. But he fit in seamlessly. And the, the irony was Elgin and Wilt kind of got in each other's way because they both played in the paint. Jimmy McMillan was the prototype small forward. He could, you know, shoot it from, you know, 15, 17 feet. He could do his thing, solid defense. And this dude with an Ivy League background came in and was the perfect fit. And that's what I'm saying. You know, he, in my mind, was actually the unsung hero of the Lakers. And, and you know, the Lakers won the title that year, and they, they hadn't won it before. And it, was, it wasn't solely because of Jimmy McMillan. But like I say, you talk about the Lakers back then, and you, you can go volumes about Jerry West, volumes about Wilt. But you're probably not going to talk about Jimmy McMillan. So to me, he is my definition of the unsung hero. How about you, Jonathan? Did you had you heard of Jimmy McMillan? No, actually, this is uh, new for me. So that's super exciting to learn something new. And I, I like how you kind of tied that in. So in 1985, the Giants lose 100 games, and at this point. In Major League Baseball history, right, the Giants are one of the original teams, along with the Yankees, the the Braves, the Boston Braves, which would obviously become the Atlanta Braves. You know, there's only a handful of teams of original teams, and the Giants are, are one of those teams. And, of course, the big deal with the Giants and the Dodgers moving to the West Coast, uh, I believe, what's that, 1957 or the beginning of that, and here you have in 1985, the Dodgers are going strong still in 1985. In fact, the Dodgers within you know four years prior have a World Series. They're still pretty dominant in the National League. And the Giants at this point, the last time they had gone to the World Series is 1962. So the last time they went to the World Series is 23 years in the rears. And attendance is way down. Of course, Candlestick has this challenge. I mean... For those of us that went to games in Candlestick, it was like a, a pride pride thing, right? It was a badge of honor to say that you've been to a game at Candlestick at night or even the day. Day games day games that you'd go on the weekends the when you sat in the left field stands, you were in the sun the entire time. So even though that it could be a little cold, you'd get out there and just bake and get a sunburn because you were just totally exposed. And it was a funky you know, funky stadium, but it was our stadium. But 1985, coming out of that season, the Giants, I mean, there's all the rumors and everything. And if everybody who recalls, or for those that don't know, there was a lot of chatter in 1985 out of that season and going into 1986, that Giants are going to move to Tampa Bay. And of course, eventually a, a team goes into Tampa Bay. But that 1986 team challenges for you know, the NL West title, they would eventually succumb to the Astros. And again, the Astros, the Reds, and the Braves are in the NL West at this point. And the Giants would actually go all the way into September. And unfortunately, the clinching moment would be a no-hitter by Mike Scott 
against the Giants. We kind of that was kind of the clinching moment. But the success of that team really launched the Giants into the NL. You know, they went to the NLCS in '87. Of course, they would go to the World Series in '89. But if it wasn't for that success, the Giants probably go to Tampa and the team gets moved. And the unsung hero on that team is a little-known player that was actually possibly at the time one of the worst trades that the Giants had ever made. The Giants would trade Jack Clark you know, for the 1985 season for basically beans. They got Dave LaPointe, who was a journeyman, who was nothing. And really the only piece of that trade that would make it to the 1986 season was a shortstop named Jose Uribe. And Jose Uribe from 1986 to like 1990, arguably, you know, there were certain years that he he could have been a little bit better and won the gold glove over Ozzie Smith. But he was just a notch below Ozzie Smith defensively at shortstop during those years. And that was one of the things that really made the Giants successful is they became very good defensively. Robbie Thompson at second base, Will Clark at first. Third base was a little bit of a merry-go-round. You know, Kevin Mitchell was playing third. You had Chris Brown at third. You had, um, actually, when Jose Ribe would get a little bit injured later on in the late 80s, you had Matt Williams that actually originally was a shortstop and would become a third baseman. And, of course, he won a gold glove in both leagues. But the Giants actually became really good defensively. And that, of course, helped their pitching staff and really – pushed them to their success. And Jose Ribe was solid at the bat, not amazing, but you know, he moved the runners along. Of course, he was always batting eighth, but you know, he would he would be in the top and sacrifice hits. And he was just that guy that was the glue that put everything together. And then again, if the Giants don't come back and and win, they they were gone. And in 1987, he bats 291, which is you know super solid for, you know, for a shortstop. And um, that that's that's my unsung hero. If 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 it wasn't for him and and his contributions, Pac Bell Park, AT and T, Chase Field, whatever it's called today, wouldn't be here. The Giants wouldn't be in San Francisco, and it's very well possible that the Giants would be the Tampa Bay Giants. Well, that's that's amazing. That's amazing analysis. And if that's accurate, then he is a hero. But it's funny how certain positions are more apt for unsung heroes. So, you know, I picked a small forward. Um, I think shortstop is is one because they they do hold the thing together. They play tight defense up the middle and they do things. But I'm going to switch sports and do two quick guys. And in my mind, they're both unsung heroes and not a surprise on the offensive line. I mean, I was trying to think. I'm not sure I can even name more than like three offensive linemen in the NFL today. I mean, you just don't know anything about them. But in the 70s, the Rams were a powerhouse, and they were good. They they weren't as good as the Vikings or the Cowboys, who they always lost in the championship. But they were good, and they had they had great running backs, and they 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 were just they had a great defense. So you heard all about these guys. You heard about obviously Eric Dickerson and you heard about, um, you know, Jack Youngblood and Jim Youngblood, Nolan Cromwell, all these guys. And even the offensive line, Tom Mack, Dennis Harrow, Jackie Slater, but there was a center named Rich Saul, S-A-U-L. And 
He had a twin brother who played, and he had another brother played. Three Saul brothers played pro football. He was a center. He called the signals for the offensive line, and he was solid. He, he played like 10 years, didn't miss many games, and was just a guy you'd never hear about. But the better story, the better unsung hero I have, and I did this for you because I know your affinity to the silver and black. Back in my generation, long before scouting combines, they had a thing called the Senior Bowl. And the top seniors in college would play a game and and they'd play and it was basically to, you know, audition for for the NFL. I mean, it's so funny when you compare it to today because I, I, I don't want to digress too much, but this this whole BCS series has ruined bowl games because now if you're not in the top bowls, if you're not in the top four, the good players sit out. I mean, Caleb Williams of SC, who in my mind will be a phenomenal pro player um, and probably the number one pick, didn't play in the bowl game. And, and no, one, no one even said a word about it because they're like, yeah, you're too valuable. You know, we you can't risk getting hurt. So the unintended consequences of the BCS is they screwed all the other bowls. But back in the 70s, back in the 70s, before the combine, they had the senior bowl. And the consensus number one pick was this gigantic man, I believe out of Middle Tennessee State, named Ed Jones, better known as Too Tall Jones. And he was just, you know, and this, you got to understand, no one had ever seen him play. No one knew anything about him because they, they didn't have coverage. But he was the guy. So John Madden of the Raiders went to watch the practices. And he's like, well, we can't draft too tall. But shit, this guy blocking him is pretty darn good. He was from a historically black college. I, I believe it was Florida A&M, which I'm not sure exists anymore. So they drafted him number 16 or 17, Henry Lawrence. So if you name your fav- if you name your favorite Raiders, just the man on the street or woman on the street, it'd be what Ken Stabler, Daryl LaMonica, Marcus Allen, Ted Jim Hendricks, Plunkett. Jim Plunkett, Lyle Alzado. Todd Christensen. Yeah, you would not say Henry Lawrence. Henry Lawrence was a stud. Henry Lawrence did not miss games. Henry Lawrence was a great player, and you got to figure he's got Art Shell and Gene Upshaw near him, so he's not going to get any publicity. But he's just the guy who you plug in there and you say to yourself, okay, I don't have to worry about the guys blocking. There'll be no sacks. He'll open holes for the runners, the whole thing. And to me, that's the definition of an unsung hero. I just think it's a great story. And I think it's true because I've read it numerous times. Yeah. Henry Lawrence, unsung, you know, and to me, I, I think most people at work feel unappreciated. When, when I was a lawyer in the office, I felt unappreciated. Then when I became the public defender, it was the same thing. It's like, yeah, people don't understand how hard you work and what you do. I, I think a lot of it's ego and and stuff. But in the pros, it's just different because, you know, there are people who get a lot of adulation and they get a lot of ink and they get a lot of stuff. And Henley Lawrence was none of those things. But if you talk to people on the Raiders and you read about the NFL, he was a solid, solid offensive tackle that took care of business that was great and no one ever heard anything of him. And I think, you know, I think he's got a couple rings with the Raiders and, you know, I, I think you can make a very strong case that without a guy like Henry Lawrence, they don't win. He actually is one of only a handful of players to have all three to be on all three Super Bowl teams. So I believe he and Ted Hendricks and I think shell might have all three as well. There aren't very many. There's only a handful of guys that can say that they were uh, on those teams. Yeah, Henry Lawrence. It's funny that you even bring him up 
because yeah, he's one of those guys that I totally forgot about because you think of shell, you think of, uh, you know, when you talk about Raiders offensive linemen, I think it goes auto and shell or shell and auto. Like that's how, where people go first. And then Upshaw. And then probably Upshaw's is after those two. And nobody talks about, you're right, no one talks about Henry Lawrence. And, you know, the Raiders from that late 70s and the early 80s, I mean, those offensive lines, I mean, don't get me wrong, Marcus is, between he and Todd Christensen, those are my two favorite guys. And, uh, yeah, if, if it wasn't for that offensive line, I mean, where would the Raiders have been? But they were they were pretty amazing. That's a good one. That's a that's a good pull. That that's absolutely a good pull. So you're right. Thank you. I, I I do appreciate that one. So my next guy, it's funny. You have, and I'm sure you you have these too with with your old school Dodger teams. You have all the stars, but then you have those secondary or tertiary guys that. You know, they're they're obviously they're not stars, but if it wasn't for them, like they, you have to keep things rolling right in the lineup. The lineup has to keep turning over defensively. They have to do their job and then they have those special plays that stick out and, you know, provide you always talk about the drama and then maintain that drama or keep the drama. And one of those guys, you know, they called him the shark. And it's, it's Gregor Blanco for the Giants. And so that run, he wasn't on the 2010 team, but he was on the 12 and 14 team. But he was that guy. His OPS is basically league average, so he, which means he's, a, you know, he's close to 100. He's like 99 It's during his time. So that means he's a league average hitter. But he was just that spark plug, and he played all three outfield positions. And whenever you have a no-hitter or a perfect game, there's always one or two plays that stick out that's like, hey, that if it wasn't for that, they you wouldn't have the no-hitter or the perfect game. And Matt Cain's perfect game against the Astros in 2012. So Gregor Blanco, I mean, here's the call by Dwayne Kuyper. And this is hit out in the alleyway. A long run for Blanco. Blanco's going to dive, and he makes the catch. Just an unbelievable catch by Gregor Blanco. I mean, he goes, you know, for those that aren't familiar with, with, I think it was Pac Bell Park at that point in time, they've got the really big right field alleyway, right center field alleyway. The right field has got the shorter shorter field with the big, you know, with the archways and the, and the brick wall. And then they have this massive, you know, triples alley which has now since been brought in a little bit, but it's still pretty far out there. And he's shaded a little bit towards center, but I mean, he's on a run and he's got to run and dive and catch. And it's one of those things where if he misses it, that's a triple might even be an inside the park home run. And he's going for it and he catches it. And if it's not for that, there's no perfect game for Matt Cain. And that was, you know, that was the first perfect game for the giants. I think that might be it. Like they've got no hitters, but I think that might be their only perfect game. And then also he struck out, I believe, 13 batters. So I think he has 
first or second most strikeouts for a perfect game. And I remember that game because uh, I didn't have the MLB pass at the time, but they I was watching the, the highlights on the MLB network, and they broke into the game around the sixth inning because he was going for So they start basically played the game after the sixth inning. So I watched the sixth, seventh, eighth, the ninth, and that play happened in the top of the seventh inning. And so I remember it happening, and it was like, wow, that that that's amazing. So Gregor Blanco, he's one of those guys, that key cog that you needed. You know, he wasn't Buster Posey. He wasn't, you know, Pablo Sandoval. He wasn't, you know, the main cast of characters, Lincecum, Bumgarner, and all those guys. But without him, you, you need that guy that's just solid. You don't need him to, to play out of his capabilities. You don't need him to do any more than what he is. Just be yourself. And by being yourself, you know, he's a, he's a big fan favorite. And, uh, you know, I think all Giants fans, you know, are super, super excited that he was a Giant. Well, I'm gonna, my next guy um, is infamous in, in Giant history as a Dodger. And, you know, the, the 60s Dodgers, if you ask someone about the 60s Dodgers, they'd probably say Koufax Drysdale. Then they'd say Maury Wills. They might say, they might say the Vulture, Phil Reagan. But the guy I want to bring up as unsung hero and this is another thing about position. So we've talked about shortstops. We talked kind of about small forwards. We talked about offensive linemen. And I'm going to bring up a catcher, Johnny Roseboro. Back in the day, this is long before pitch counts. This is long before, you know, they could talk to the pitchers through some, whatever device it is now. Catchers caught a game, and they, they would call pitches. And they would know hitters. They would do that. And, and no K and O hitters. They'd know hitters' weaknesses. And Johnny Roseboro, who played the last season in Brooklyn in 57, came over in 58, and he was solid. He, he, he played for a catcher a lot of games every year in the, in the 140, 150s. I mean, he was there. He was an everyday guy. And he had a decent bat. But Koufax and Drysdale loved him, and they trusted him. And they would say, you know, we would not have the success we have without John Roseboro. And he's the kind of guy that no one knew anything about. And if you mention John Roseboro, first thing they say is Juan Marshall. And the story about Roseboro and Marshall, from my understanding, is that um, I can't, I'm not sure, I guess, I, I'm not sure what game it was. I mean, was. Marshall was throwing inside, and Marshall was a Bob Gibson type. You know, he he did not like hitters, you know, crowding the plate, and he didn't mind plunking people. Well, it was Koufax versus Marshall. And Koufax would not throw inside. I mean, he, I, the story was he knew he threw so hard. He didn't really didn't want to hurt anybody. So he would not brush people back. So when Marshall came to bat, you know, they, the Dodgers bench wanted Koufax to plunk him, but Koufax wouldn't. So Roseboro <laughs> threw the ball back right past Marshall's ear, maybe even nicked his ear and just like, you know, F you buddy. And then they got into it and, he got smacked on the head with the bat, and you know it was, it was a whole brawl. And and now God knows what happened. Now I mean now, I I, I shudder to think what would have happened now because I think Marshall got maybe like a 15 game suspension or something. It wasn't a huge deal, and people kind of understood it. Now the talk show host would be you know calling for deportation, imprisonment, you know Guantanamo, who knows what. But I digress. Anyways, John Roseboro was an integral part of the Dodgers championship teams, the 
59, they won the series. 63, they won the series. 65, they won the series. He was the guy every year handling the entire pitching staff, catching probably 90% of the games. And, you know, catchers are like these offensive linemen. I mean, you know, it's a tough, it's tough on the body. But Johnny Roseboro did it really well. He had an average bat. I think I think a lot of years he hit like 270. So he wasn't an automatic out. He had some ribbies. But mainly, he was an excellent defender. And he was an excellent handler of pitchers. And he had the trust of Koufax, Drysdale, and Padres. And he was great. And very few people are remembering him for anything other than getting smacked on the head by Juan Marshall. And it strikes me that the catcher is another position. I mean, even a guy like, I mean, when the Angels are doing good, you know, Benji Molina. I mean, you know, Benji Molina probably at 200. And I I think I think I could outrun Benji Molina. Now I'm really slow. But, you know, the Angels would not do well without him. He he handled pitchers. He was a great defender the whole bit. So I think those catchers, middle infielders, small forwards, offensive linemen, those are the guys that if you don't have good strength there, you're not going to win. And just having stars doesn't get it done. So my my next pick was Johnny Roseboro. Yeah, it's 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 funny because I actually went back and talked about that. That's on an episode of one of the extra times, you know, talking about it. So there's not a whole lot of video or a lot of stuff that you can actually find. There's a lot of stills. There's a lot of photographs that you can see of the incident between he and Marischal. But um, no, that's a that that that's a good one. And that and you need those. Like you said, I think you you kind of hit on to something. These unsung heroes seem to play these less heralded positions, shortstop, catcher, whatever it might be. And and this next one I think is fits in that vein, middle linebacker. So in 1993, the Giants draft a guy in the seventh round out of Colorado, and he ends up making the team. And he actually plays in all 16. 16 games, but he doesn't have very much run time. This is 1993. If I have it right, that's the year uh, Jay Schrader's the quarterback, and I believe that's the year the, Gi- the Giants, that the Raiders lose 51-3 to in Buffalo, which, on another side note, was one of those, you know, freezing games. You've got, you know, the West Coast team coming to go play in Buffalo in January, and, and we're going to have something similar tonight with the Dolphins in Kansas City. And that seems pretty crazy. And maybe that's a discussion for another day. But this guy is one of those guys that just, he's a grinder. And he would become, after a couple of years, would become the starting middle linebacker for the Raiders. And he would have like a five or six year run where he's in the top of the league in tackles, both combined and solo tackles. He's right up there with the guys like Ray Lewis, Derek Brooks, Chad Brown, you know, he'd be top four or five in tackles, top 10 at the, near the near the end of his run with the Raiders. But Greg Beaker, number 54, Greg Beaker was the captain of those Raider defenses in that, you know, mid to late 90s. And the Raiders had, you know, fleeting success during those years. Excuse me. But, um. He was just one of those dudes that he wasn't that gifted athletically. And he was average size, 6'2", 250. I mean, that's a you know reasonable size for a middle linebacker. 
But the guy was kind of like a and I don't want to make it sound like because he was white, but he was kind of like a a Cal Ripken kind of guy at middle linebacker. He knew where to be. He you know, there was a game actually against I believe it was the Colts. And, you know, they really took it to the Colts. And it was mostly I remember after the game because they were saying, hey, Beekert knew he studied so much film and he knew their formations and he knew what they would audible out of and into. And he was calling the game and helping the rest of the defense be in the right spot. So he was kind of like that guy that, hey, he got all these tackles. It wasn't because he was outrunning people or or being more, more athletic on the field, but he knew where to be. He knew where to set himself up. And he really helped those Raiders teams, especially in those kind of funky years where, again, after 1985, the Raiders just, you know, had such fleeting amounts of success. But Greg Beekert is just one of those guys that I really liked because he was just, without him, those defenses, I mean, they were already had some years where they were really bad, but they would have been probably even worse. Yeah, inside linebacker is another good position for these guys that, you know, really – do grunt work, and without it, you're you're screwed. And most people don't know them. They they, they know the flashy ones. They know the outside the 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 blitz rushers, the guys who you know rush the passer every play, the the Lawrence Taylors, the whomever. But the inside linebackers that that you know just clog the middle and make sure that the other team can't get the four yard run when they need it is is, is crucial. I'm a, I'm gonna stick with baseball for one, and and this one might might you I I'll be interested to hear what you think about them. And part of it is just the unsungness is just because this guy was so normal looking and not athletic looking. And I'm talking about no one other than the Angels shortstop of the World Series winning team, David Eckstein. I mean, this dude, you, it looked like when you pick him for a slow pitch softball game. And he was just a nerdy looking guy that like, wow, this guy is not big. He's not fast. He doesn't really look that strong, but he was on the Angels team. And, you know, they, you know, they had, you know, whether it's Vlad Guerrero or, or, or Garrett Anderson or whoever it was, but he was their glue. He played, I think, 150 games. He had a boatload of at-bats. He was there every day and he was solid. And he was the kind of guy that no one thought about. He probably batted, you know, seventh or eighth. I mean, I, I don't think he was, I don't think he was a leadoff hitter. And he did, he, he was the antithesis of flash. He did nothing flashily, but he was solid. He 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 covered his ground, so he he got balls up the middle. He you know, he made relay throws. He moved runners over. He had to. He actually got hit by pitch a lot, so he he got on that way. And he was a good solid player. And when you when people talk to those Angels teams with under Mike Sosha, no one had ever mentioned David Eckstein. He was like he was like the invisible man. But without him. They don't win, and it's just it's just that easy, and that's that's what's always forgotten, and that's that's you know that's why, and I think it's it's very interesting now changing gears because now the NBA is all about stars, and it's like okay, if we can get three stars together, we can win, and they don't get it. It's not about stars; it's about team games and people fitting in, and someone has to do the dirty work. In basketball, that's you know. Boxing out and getting rebounds and setting screens. And in baseball, the dirty work is calling the pitchers, the catcher, or covering up the middle and second base shortstop. You you do not do well without 
good defense up the middle. And you can have a lot of hitters. You can have a lot of guys throwing strikeouts. But if teams are getting hits up the middle that shouldn't be gotten and they're they're going from first to third, all this stuff, you are out of luck. And David Eckstein, in my mind, and maybe it's just because I just could never believe the guy even was a pro. <laughs> I mean, if he's walked down the street, you might think he's a librarian or, or maybe maybe an auto mechanic or perhaps the manager at a Wendy's. But the dude played, I think, 10 or 11 seasons in Major League Baseball and, and actually has pretty good numbers. And I call him an unsung hero. You know David Eckstein, right? Of course, because there's kind of a funny here. So he doesn't make the major leagues until he's age 26 seasons, which is often, right, just historically. This is no ding against Eckstein himself. But, you know, if you if you haven't made the major leagues at this point, like he hadn't even had a cup of coffee until this point. <laughs> and often if you're not – if you don't get there by that age, right, your very few examples show somebody that has – any kind. I mean, he made a couple of all-star teams, but if you're not making it at that point, you're 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 probably just a bit player and you're not a, a starter. Also, he was originally a second baseman. His, it, you know, he didn't really have much of an arm either. Like right? he, you know, he, he kind of had a for a shortstop. I mean, I'm sure his arm is way stronger than mine, so I'm not <laughs> suggesting that he's weak. But comparatively, he didn't really have much of an arm, and so we had left. Long Beach, went back to the Bay Area, was back in the Bay Area. But when we were in Long Beach, you know, I've, I've told this story many times before. I was getting tickets to those Angels teams in the, you know, late 90s fairly often and watching those teams. So shortstop, the year before, Benji Gill was the starting, was the main starter. But it was also on the back end of Gary DeSarcina, if you remember DeSar, right? He sure. was a long, long time you know, real solid defensive shortstop for the Angels. And Benji Gill was supposed to be the guy. And if I remember, I think Gill gets hurt going into that next year. And that's what allowed Eckstein to, you know, to be basically the starter. And he wasn't, he actually played a lot more second base that that first year, 2001. And of course, he's part of the 2002 team that beats the Giants in the, the World Series. But he would go and move on to San Luis. The Cardinals, yes. To the Cardinals. And I was at the game that he hits a walk-off grand slam. And I probably have this memory wrong, but I almost, I'm almost positive it was at the old Bush Stadium before they had opened up the new Bush Stadium. But we had moved to St. Louis in the winter of 2004, and then he would be a Cardinal that following year. So he would be a Cardinal starting shortstop for the Cardinals in 2005. So he's got a couple of World Series, right? He gets the 2002 World Series with the, um, you know, with the Angels. <laughs> And then, of course, he would he would turn around and, and get a World Series with the Cardinals as well. And um, so we were in St. Louis from December of 2004. And then I would come back to California in January of 08. And then the rest of the family would move over in September. 
of 08, but I mean, he was, he was there. He was the starting shortstop the entire time that we were in St. Louis. So I, I remember him well, and you're right. You look at him. I mean, the guy was five listed at five, six, one seventy. I wouldn't be surprised if he was five, six, you know, buck 50. Yeah. Uh, you know, he wasn't that big of a guy, but it just goes to show you that you can be, you know, there's, there's a lot skill can be measured in a lot of different ways. And the guy was super skilled and, and you're right. His first two years in the league, he led the league in getting hit by pitches, you know, two years straight. And he also did, he also led the league in, in something that nobody does anymore. Sacrifice hits. Yeah. He'd move guys over. That, that was Sosha's big thing. Sosha, Sosha had guys move over and Sosha was the, in my opinion, the king of the squeeze. The Angels had so many suicide squeezes, and teams did not know what to do. And, you know, so guy in third base, he goes, all the all the batter has to do is put the ball in play, and you got to run. And Sosha called it frequently and successfully. So my next player is one of our – I know he's one of your favorites, and he's definitely one of my favorites. And there's a backstory that our fans might get a kick out of, which is this year you gave me a Christmas present, and it was a card of him. And I'm speaking of no other than Ron Harper. Now, the backstory of Ron Harper is a good one. When he came to the NBA, he was known as Baby Jordan because he could just do it all. And then, of course, the Clippers curse happened. He went to the Clippers and blew out everything and was just never the same physically. It wasn't even close. But he could still play ball. And he was on, I'm pretty sure, five championship teams, three with Michael Jordan and two with Kobe and Shaq and each of those teams. He was not, he was not the lead guy. He was not the second guy. He was not even the third banana. He was probably like the sixth or seventh banana, but I remember watching those games. I certainly remember watching those Laker teams and I can tell you as sure as 10 dimes equals a dollar that the Lakers do not win championships without Ron Harper. He fit in really well. He was not really a great outside shooter, but he could hit the open shot he could take it to the hole if he needed to. He had very long arms. He had he had good reach, and he could play excellent defense. And he just knew what he was doing. And he also knew enough to stay out of the way when necessary. So he put his ego on the side, and he was one of these guys. And, you know, you, you talk about the Bulls championship. You will talk about Scottie Pippen, Michael Jordan, Horace Grant, you know, fill in the blanks. Harper will not be mentioned. You'll, you'll also same thing the Lakers. You'll talk about Shaq and Kobe. Everyone else. Harper will not be mentioned, but if you watch those games, you know, I mean, obviously the Lakers couldn't win without Kobe or Shaq, but they get, they get the acknowledgements. They get the kudos. Ron Harper got none of those. And he was a very solid player. Two quick things about Ron Harper before I turn it over. One, I think one of the problems with his, his lack of notoriety was he had a really horrible stutter and he couldn't really do interviews because he didn't he couldn't speak very well. It was sad. But I remember as being a Clipper fan when he first came over, you know, this is talking generations. He's on Cleveland. I'd never seen him play. I wouldn't know what he looked like at all. I, all I heard was the guy was supposed to be pretty good. And I, I beg your indulgence if I told this story before, but first game of the Clippers, Clippers have like a three-on-two break. Someone's going down the middle, and they throw the ball to this guy behind him, and it's Ron Harper. And without missing a beat, he catches the ball behind him and just dunks on someone's face. And I'm mean, like, wow, this guy is good. And I think 
the consensus in the NBA is if he does not blow out his knee, he's like, you know, a Bernard King type. He's like all NBA for a handful of years. But instead, he totally, you know, rehabs and does his thing and ends up with five rings. So I uh, I like Ron Harper as a player. I don't know anything about him as a person other than he stutters. But he fits, in my mind, as the unsung hero, the guy who does the dirty work, the guy who does the things other people don't want to do, and most importantly – the guy who gets no props, the guy who just, you know, kind of does his thing. And I think his teammates know how valuable he is. So with that, my final one is is another NBA guy. And we talked about not him, but the run-up to him being drafted. And the run-up to him being drafted was the trade of Robert Parrish to Boston Celtics and then the pick swap that the Warriors and the Celtics would have with the Warriors taking Joe Barry Carroll at a Purdue number one and then of course the Celtics take McHale number three out of Minnesota and what happened after that but there's another guy that the Warriors drafted that year and he was the first pick of the second round out of Alcorn State. Oh, Mr. Mean. Yeah, that's right. Out of Alcorn State, undersized power forward, Larry Smith. He would win two back-to-back championships as an assistant coach. So immediately after retiring, he becomes a, an assistant coach. So he'd get two back-to-back rings as an assistant coach with the Rockets. But Larry Smith, that guy averaged over double digit rebounds for the first like six seven years of his career and a couple years he was at 9.99 but i mean he was right there and you talk about boxing out and clearing people out it wasn't like he was the most athletic he wasn't the biggest you know he was 6 8 215 i mean that is not you know widely considered that big for the power forward position. But that guy just knew how to position himself. He wasn't, you know, Rodman, a lot of people talk about Rodman being the greatest rebounder ever, but Rodman was also freakishly athletic. Freakishly athletic. I mean, there's a picture of him going up for a rebound where his arm is, you know, top of his hand is is near the top of the backboard. And I mean, obviously, Rodman was a smart player and good with positioning as well. But Larry Smith was that guy without necessarily the athleticism, just smart, knew how to play, knew how to put himself in the right, right positions. And again, he's that glue guy, right? He needs to be there. You don't you don't need him to score. You need him to play tough defense, keep people off the boards, clear the boards and get the outlet. And, you know, they called him Mr. Mean for a reason. I mean, he just had this – it wasn't even a nasty streak. It's just the fact that, you know, he could just put himself – and for me, you know, when I was in high school and I played junior varsity basketball, I was only able to get on the court because we had guys that got moved up to, to varsity, and I was only given the opportunity to play if I was going to play defense and be gritty. And so Larry Smith was like my guy, like, hey, I'm Larry Smith. I, I was we played a two three zone and we played zone because at this point our centers had moved up to varsity. And so 
we didn't really have anybody that was any taller than, you know, six one that was playing. And I was, you know, I'm five eleven and change. I'm just under six feet. You put me in shoes, I'm probably six feet, but but I played I played middle. I played the center position. And my job really was just to keep people out of the paint and box out. And it didn't even matter if I actually got the rebound or not. My job was to keep people out and and let and and the way we were successful was, you know, kind of more team rebounding. So as long as I kept people out of the paint and not don't let people in. And so that's what I did. I, I just would use my body and spread out. And I I watched Larry Smith. And then even when I what we were playing just, you know, not during actual basketball season, but just with my friends screwing around, right? I'd pretend I was Larry Smith and just moving people. And to this day, I still play kind of the same way. And I, I rebound really hard and move people out of the way and don't let them, you know, don't let them in, try to get as wide as possible. And I've got really strong legs. And presumably that was one of his other nicknames was the man with the golden legs. So he was just really, really lower body strong. So Mr. Mr. Mean, Larry Smith, you know, unsung hero. Yeah, that's a good choice. I, I, I think the unsung heroes are also nice. I mean, because I, I think we can see ourselves in them. I mean, it's it's hard really to imagine yourself, or at least for me, it's hard to imagine myself as Tom Brady or Eric Dickerson or some superstar. But you know, in, in all the sports I played, I, I was always that guy that 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 helped out, that that tried to do the little things. And so you know you you get by on on what you have and and you look at a guy like David Eckstein who you know had very limited physical skills and he persevered and and I think the thing they have all these guys have in common is it's funny because it's bringing back the show of of the longevity and we talked about the same thing but the the people that that are the unsung heroes I think what they have in common also is smarts I mean they know how to fit in and they know how to do their thing in a in a non-obtrusive way that helps out. And, and they are team oriented. And and I think teams can't win without them. And it's 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 fun to see. On on a slightly lesser note, because this guy certainly wasn't unsung, but you know, the first big three that that did it was obviously LeBron, D. Wade, and Chris Bosch. And what people can't forget is Chris Bosch, who was a star. Definitely said, I'll be the third banana. I, I I will not be the star. I won't be the one number one option. I won't be the number two option. And he was a guy who, for them, did the dirty work. He was not an unsung hero because everyone knew of him. He was one of the big three. But, you know, in order to win in sports, in my opinion, you need people who sacrifice themselves for the team and maybe, you know, maybe the little things that go unappreciated. And, and in football, it's all, you know, wear and tear in the body, but in baseball, and, and that that's why it's so hard to watch nowadays. It's move. It used to be moving the guy over. So, you know, guys on second base, you're up. What's your job? Ground ball to second or first. Your batting average goes down. You get absolutely nothing, but you put the guy in scoring position. And that's a big deal. I mean, because the sacrifice doesn't count against you as an at-bat, but moving the guy over doesn't. That was an art. And people who do that for the team – the teams that the players on the team and the managers on the team knew that. And it was, it was very important. So I, I take this as trying to appreciate not just the stars, not just the LeBrons, not just the, you know, the Madison Baumgartners, not just the everyone, but, but you know, the, the little guys who, although you can't really call Henry Lawrence a little guy, but the, the invisible people who without it, the team won't work. And I tell you, 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 you know, 
you watch any successful pro team, their offensive line has got to be strong. You can't win without an offensive line. In, in basketball, you need that rebounding machine. You need that forward. In baseball, you need defense up the middle, which is shortstop and catcher. And that's just that's just how it works. So I, I like the Unsung Heroes. I like all those guys. And in a longer show, I could go on with a bunch more guys. But I think we're basically out of time. So I want to say to everyone, thank you. And one more plug, not for listening or anything else, but to say Jonathan and I really like talking about sports. It, it's it's fun, and we do for nothing other than fun. And if you happen to listen and you like us, or if you don't like us, come by the pizza place on Front Street. It's Transmission Brewery up top. It's toppers down low. We're going to be up top, weather permitting. And come by and share a slice of pizza and a, a beer with us, and we'll be happy to talk to you. That's all I got. So we would be remiss to also bring up David Eckstein. So in 2006, uh, I don't know how we forgot this, but he was also the World Series MVP. You're kidding. <laughs> no, he batted 360. Wow. He batted 364. <laughs> he had four RBI, scored scored three times. He was eight for 22, um, and he was voted the World Series MVP. So he was also, you know, he's that unsung hero, but he was he was the guy they needed, right? The guy they needed, and his nicknames are X Factor and Just Enough. That was one just of his, enough. That's a good one, one of his one of his nicknames. But um separate of that, as Steve was saying, just so everyone's clear, next Saturday, that is the twentieth, and we've moved the time to two thirty because of logistical things and making sure that we've got the right space. But uh, as Steve mentioned, thank you so much. And one way that you can thank us is please like and subscribe. Please interact with our polls. That helps our numbers. That helps people uh, hear more of us and see more of us. We're actually got a pretty amazing reach. And we really haven't done a whole lot of marketing for the show other than just here on the podcast itself. But uh, if you can help us out with that, we'd really appreciate it. Other than that, thank you so much. We're going to be a little bit late today. Normally, we post every day at noon, so we're going to be a little bit late today. Apologies for that. But thank you, everyone, again. I'm Jonathan. I'm Steve. Talk to you later.